Geoguive, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. On this evening's programme, we continue to ask how Irish society is making sense of its first century since independence, particularly in relation to its religious institutions. In a moment, we'll hear from Derek Scally, Berlin correspondent for the Irish Times and author of The Best Catholics in the World. But first, the launch of the late Father Pat O'Brien's poem at the Centre for Human Rights, San Salvador, will take place next Friday, the 21st of October, in Charlie Byrne's bookshop in Galway. Father Pat, who died of cancer just under a year ago, was born in Clare Morris and served as a beloved priest on the western seaboard of Ireland, on Clare Island and in Ishturk, in Shkahana and Kilmina, and latterly in Tume and Cahalastran. Pat was a champion of the arts, collecting paintings by Irish artists, and he was also a poet, as well as an advocate for poets, perhaps most astonishingly being the biographer of the great American writer Denise Levitoff. The beautiful edition of one of Pat's longer poems that's being posthumously launched this week is a meditation on a trip he took many years ago with three fellow seminarians to El Salvador and a testament to how the liberation theology communities with whom he lived in Central America shaped his entire ministry. To talk about the poem, we're joined by Professor Pather Kirby, who's Emeritus Professor of International Politics and Public Policy at the University of Limerick, and Coordinator of the Education Programme at Clock Jordan Eco Village. And Pather, you've been invited to say a few words at this launch how did you come to be involved? Well, I was most surprised, Siobhan, because, uh, you know, I spent my life writing academic books. So when I was first invited, I said, well, I need to, I need to read the poem. Mm. I need to sort of live with it for a while before I'll accept this. And the moment I read it, I was so, I was so uh, hit by it. I mean, it was a, it was a visceral sort of a, an experience hmm. that I immediately said yes. Now, why was I asked? I think I was asked for two reasons. One, that uh, as a journalist, I was covering issues in El Salvador and Nicaragua I at that period. Uh, I interviewed Archbishop Romero, for example, a year before he was murdered, in the place where he was murdered. And I think I would be sort of known as being somebody whose life, like Father Pat's, was very much influenced and continues to be by by liberation theology and by that uh, remarkable conversion, really, that happened in the Latin American church uh, at that time. Uh, and all that happened subsequently in terms of the church siding with the poor against military dictatorships. Do you feel a kindred spirit in, in Father Pat O'Brien, having, a, having a, a different and a vision for how the church could be, not just a criticism of how it is here, but a, a vision uh, a model, um, an alternative, concrete form that, that you both had in mind for, for how to be church? Um, yeah, definitely. The answer to your question is absolutely definitely. I would have been very inspired by those. I mean, there were a small number of priests who seemed to be living the gospel in, in that way. And that, I don't mean necessarily of being sort of out on the picket line or being, mm -hmm. being great voices of social protest, but people that lived 
priests that lived very close to the people, but priests that lived in a way that nurtured people's lives, people's difficult lives, and brought them to a sense of deeper, uh, deeper understanding of, you know, of of being for others. I mean, that's what I think trying to be a Christian is about: being for others. And and Father Pat definitely would have been one of those. Pat organised arts festivals in Shkahana, County Galway. Um, he hosted a show full of interest and kindness on Midwest Radio when he lived in Mayo. He preached so beautifully in Cahalastran that people drove over 100 miles each Sunday to hear him. And in all of this, I get the impression of someone who was weaving worlds together, a bit like what you were saying there. He, he was very informed by one world and the gospel message it gave him and then could bring that back in order to minister to people who were um, suffering, sad, lonely, in trouble in one way or another, back home in the west of Ireland. Yeah, you make me you make me feel sorry that I I wasn't one of the ones who drove a hundred kilometres to hear him preach. I I would have done that uh, because I think preaching is is a very very important and uh, a, a very fundamental part of our faith formation and faith support. Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't get to know him better, and I am, I suppose, now uh, through this wonderful poem beginning to touch in to some of those depths that he struggled with and he expresses in th- in this poem. As I said, it sort of, you know, it, it, it was almost a physical blow to me when, when I read it the first time. It's so powerful. Uh, it embodies... What to me is the essence of Christian faith, of being able to open your eyes to the suffering and tragedy of life, that deep compassion with the immense suffering that, that life brings, uh, and yet to, to beyond that and within it, not, not closing one's eyes to it, finding, uh, finding pathways of hope and of awakening and of humanity. And and in humanity is is the divinity. So yeah, the poem does all of that uh, in picking a moment in in a country that was going through the most barbarous uh, civil war, uh, and and he does it so authentically. It it really is is very very powerful and deeply imbued with with that authentic faith, which unfortunately in Ireland had been so missing for so long, I think. And you met Archbishop Romero a year before he died? I did. What was that like? Uh, <laughs> I often reflect, but I remember at the time uh, saying to somebody, he's, he was like um, a kindly Irish parish priest. In other words, the the image of Romero, and, and I mean, I saw him preaching in the cathedral, and he was ordering the military to stop firing on the people. It was a, a dramatic stuff, and it was broadcast. His sermon was broadcast throughout the country by the church radio station. The cathedral was packed to the rafters with poor people. Uh, it was an unfinished cathedral, so the very the very building itself resonated this sense of of of, of poverty, of sort of you know, incompleteness. It wasn't the cathedrals we're used to in Europe. 
which are very decorated and nice and clean. And yet this man who, who on the Sunday preached such a, a powerful sermon, <laughs> subversive sermon, dangerous sermon, uh, when I met him, I think the next day, in the cancer hospital where he was killed, we met in a small room right next to the church where he was murdered, almost to the day a year later uh, saying Mass. Uh, he, there was a strike um, in San Salvador that day, and the military had already killed four strikers. The streets were completely militarized. The, 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 the soldiers were standing uh, along the streets with their rifles in, in very threatening ways. And the Archbishop was, was mediating. So I remember I went into him and I said, uh, Archbishop, I presume because of the tense situation in the city, you won't be able to, to give the interview. And he said, no, no, uh, I promise to give you an interview. Uh, he said, I may be disturbed during the interview. You'll forgive me if I have to go out to take phone calls. Uh, so, I mean, that itself expressed a lot about the man. So I was, I was immensely, um, I was immensely impressed, you know, in a way that was different than I expected. And he, he wrote, he signed a Bible for me, which I still treasure today, particularly now that he has been uh, canonized. Uh, so I pray to him every day. Father, would you tell us uh, what's been decided about any profits that might arise from the sale of Father Pat's poem? Well, the hope was that they could be channeled to groups working uh, in El Salvador in particular with people who are suffering uh, violence. But they have discovered that there are no Irish NGOs working anymore in El Salvador and they've found it hard to identify groups that they could channel the money through. So the decision now has been made that on the uh, night of the launch that people will be uh, invited to donate and that that money will be given to a local charity. Pather, might you read for us an extract from the poem? Yes, I'll, I'll read the opening uh, verse because in reading it, what struck me so forcefully was um, just how timely this poem is because we could be reading about Ukraine uh, today in reading these first few lines. So um, th th it gives a sense, I think, of the richness of the poem, the way in which the poem really engages with, with very difficult and real suffering, and yet does so in a way that uh, sees much deeper meaning behind the sort of surface details. So... Here I start. All that is possible is minimal. One quiet note between gunfire. A woodwind announcing music is possible. Human scale might yet be played. Here think on Antigone and her tragic choice to scatter dust on a brother's body lest a ghost haunt the land. These too must risk death to document death, to say simply, this happened. In a world of lies, facts are subversive. And here no one dies like this. To say so gives the lie. And sometimes all that is possible is minimal. A truth whispering in a gale. That's Pava Kirby reading from 
At the Centre for Human Rights, San Salvador, a long poem by Father Pat O'Brien, which will be launched on Friday in Charlie Burns' bookshop in Galway. Pala Kirby, thank you very much for joining us this evening on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Siobhan, very much. And now I'm delighted to be joined by Derek Scally, who is the Irish Times correspondent in Berlin and the author of The Best Catholics in the World. Derek, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you for having me. Let's start with that title, The Best Catholics in the World. It's more than a little sardonic, is it not, given the pain of recent decades? It is, but it's also slightly nostalgic because, let's be honest, there was a time, maybe when John Paul II came to visit, we knew or we hoped we knew or we thought or we insisted that we were the best Catholics in the world. I think his homeland, Poles, the Poles, would dispute that title. Um, they would like to think they're the best Catholics. But it's sort of, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? We had an image of ourselves and we worked bloody hard. Uh, particularly after uh, we gained our independence to be that country. But I think in hindsight, we can say that came at a terrible cost. Once you have an idealised version of yourself, of who Irish people should be, free, Catholic, proud, pious people, anyone who doesn't meet that model can really be treated very badly. And I think looking back, we can see just how badly, even within the context of, of harsher times, uh, we treated many people, uh, women, the weakest in our society, um, appallingly. And I think if that was the price of being the best Catholics in the world, I'm asking in the book, was that price perhaps a little too high? Your book is based on many interviews that you took over a long stretch, at least two years. Um, often with people who we haven't heard from before or haven't heard from in this depth. And the thing that struck me was that because you approached people empathetically rather than in a sort of combative questioning way, we get to hear whole sides of people's stories that that are new that cast, or that cast the history in a new light. And I'm thinking in particular of retired Cardinal Sean Brady, for example. Yes, I, I was very anxious to talk to people who perhaps I didn't feel had been spoken to enough. I'm a journalist by profession and I know there's tremendous uh, benefits of the journalistic interview, but sometimes there's limitations. Sometimes if you're coming in quickly looking for quick answers, um, or in the case of Sean Brady, um, you have to confront him with unpleasant facts, you will get one kind of response. Whereas if you come back after the fact and approach things in a more empathetic way and tell, ask people, if you just assume that people generally try to do their best in the circumstances of the time you could you know if you take what you could say a christian approach to something assuming and treat somebody as you would like to be treated um i was surprised at how many people opened up and i th i was what really surprised me my starting point was the silence i sensed we had this huge 25 years of terrible revelations of fights of conflict much of it necessary much of it overdue but it was exhausting and as somebody who was neither a perpetrator nor a survivor victim of irish catholicism like most people out there i said well 
we've we've now a silence and an exhausted silence, but we need to start the conversation again. And I thought, well, like we can't start picking fights again, and we can't start pointing fingers. And the book, really, the empathetic approach, and I'm glad you picked up on that. That was really important to me. Um, if we move beyond, can we move beyond blame and blaming and finger pointing to responsibility? Because even if we weren't a perpetrator or an enabler of the terrible side of Catholicism, or if we're not a a survivor. We were all there, and this is our history. And even people like Sean Brady, who for many people is a, a triggering figure, a, a terrible example of clericalism, he's also an Irishman. He went through a system that many of us went through, and in his view, he was trying his best in different circumstances. And I think many people would say, and I said to myself, Sean Brady, is he, because of the, the Brendan Smith story, which we may or may not get into, he's such a provocation to many people. And I asked a question in the book, is he a provocation because he's such an example of clericalism, that type of defending the institution and to hell with everybody else? Or is he a provocation because he responded to the Brendan Smith affair just like many of us would have done at that time. And to be confronted, we can maybe scapegoat him in a certain way when we all know in our hearts that a police officer, a social worker, a teacher probably would have unfortunately responded in a similar way to him, which was do a little bit and then pass it on and hope it will go away. You mentioned responsibility there, and that's that's a, a theme throughout the book. And if I understand you right, what you want is for us to accept our common responsibility um, as citizens, as a citizenry, uh, for all the things that have happened, rather than saying, well, that's what other people, these nasty people, the new, the new um, bogeyman, if you like, the new shadow side of, uh, so the church said, you know, uh, Anybody who doesn't conform to a heteronormative way of life is other. Um, anyone who's not in the church is other. Uh, children are not to be protected, they're othered. And now you, you, you seem to be saying that in moving on, we're othering the church <laughs> and othering religious entities. And that the answer is to take responsibility. But I think a lot of people will resist that. And I think some people will find it hard to get their head around what you're asking them to take on here. Yes, I'm not really, as I said, not blaming anyone. I come from, I've spent the last 20 years in Germany and I don't think anyone alive today can be blamed or demanded to take on responsibility for the deeds of their forefathers, whether it was in the Nazi era or in East Germany, to dictatorships. But there's a very much a sort of a part and parcel of the terms and conditions of being German today is that you have responsibility for that past. You understand why it happened, how it happened, why people like you reacted as they did. And I think in our understandable wish to put the awfulness of the last 25 years behind us, there's an understandable wish. Well, I, I've left the church. I don't have anything to do with that. But you were there. And many of us were in the park in 1979 with Pope John Paul. And it's not really good enough to just say, oh, I don't go to mass now. That's not much of a contribution, really. It's in any situation, in any society, it's the people between the extremes. You know, everyone, one of us is on a sliding scale somewhere between the perpetrator and the victim. And in, gently in the book, I'm trying to encourage people where were you on that continuum of knowing? Like not all of us knew about the extremes, the institutions, the, the abuse, but some people did and some people knew not to. And um, Claire Keegan in her book, Small Things Like These, does a very good job of showing small town Ireland and the cost of knowing, the cost of reacting, the cost of not wanting to know. And, you know, you read her book or you read mine. Where do people want to locate themselves? Because... 
I'm just pointing out, let's not cut ourselves. Anyone who's Irish and anyone who's Irish over a certain age has a memory of that time. And I'm not accusing you of anything of having been there. Um, I'm just trying to encourage people to accept, A, we were there, and B, there was good and there was bad. And it is neither, not one and is not the other. And embracing all of that is about becoming mature as a, as a nation and a mature as a people and feeling that we are responsible for ourselves. We are responsible for our past. Some of us had more agency in that past. Um, uh, but if we're othering priests and religious today, we're actually carrying on a narrative that the Catholic Church of the past, the Catholic Church and institution, but also members, they othered single mothers, for instance, because they were a provocation. They were not the best Catholics. They were outside what we viewed of ourselves as a nation. If we are othering and demonizing priests and bishops today who are also Irish people, we are continuing that. They are a provocation to who we view ourselves of today as Irish people. So we're basically just repeating history. And that is really damaging, particularly for all of the many, many enlightened, educated, good religious who've dedicated their lives to this. That's a terrible way to send them off into their pension and to the end of their days. So um, James Baldwin, the African-American writer, he said the trouble, the reason why so many of us cling to anger is because when we let go of anger, we know the pain will follow. And while I can't force people to read my book, I think we all sense a, a lingering anger or a ling and we know that once we move on, it will be painful. But unless we embrace that pain and analyze it together and discuss it together, we are just trying to keep this in a box, just like we've tried to keep other things in a box in the past. And that's really damaging psychologically for a country. Carl Jung famously said, what you resist not only persists, but will grow in size. And I feel like you're suggesting a, a religious psychoanalysis probing back from the anger to the sadness, to the longing, to the root of the trauma. And in your book, I think you, you locate that with the famine and the immediate aftermath of the famine. Yes, um, I, and I went and what, what surprised me, and I think what was surprised, I was born in 1977, I'm 45, I think most of us actually don't really know much about Catholic Ireland. We know about St. Patrick, we know perhaps about the monks who went out, but I was really shocked to realise that what we consider Irish Catholicism started in 1850, immediately after the famine, um, and the church moved in um, and sort of created the modern Irish Catholic Church as we know it, institutionalised, um, devotional, First Fridays, the schools, the hospitals, all of that actually started then. So what we're seeing is um, uh, that is now dying away. But I think the church was provided a great consolation and desolation at that time. There wasn't psychotherapy available. You know, what if we were all suffering, our ancestors suffering from what we would now call survivor guilt? The church provided a place, a formalized place for people to go and have consolation and also see this tremendous rise of wonderful institutions, educated priests. You know, this is all a post-famine thing. But it's funny you mention uh, Jung. Um, I have a therapist friend in, in Germany and he was accompanying me through this book project and sort of we were sort of discussing he is not has no faith he's not religious but he did ask me a question once and he said Derek what is the greatest commandment in Christianity and I racked my brains and I I finally came up with it it was well you should love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself and he asked me a brilliant question he said Derek what if just what if your Irish Catholic Church didn't teach you to love yourself then 
if that is the case, and I think for many people, the post-famine trauma, there was a, a lack of love and a lot of brutality. Um, because of the unprocessed trauma. But if we weren't taught by Irish Catholicism to love ourselves, then Irish Catholicism has really failed in a bad way. There was tremendous love there, but I think there was harshness. And I think that harshness came from a lack of love, which does that make us the best Catholics in the world? That's the question I'm asking in the book. Uh, One of my students, um, Juana Marian, who's Romanian by birth, said of your book that Perhaps it could only have been written by someone living outside of Ireland, by which she meant, if you're in Ireland and you show any softness towards the church, it's quickly taken as complicity. And if you're an emigre, then you're painted as a nostalgic. And for you, your outsider-insider status maybe allows you to see and say things that others can't. That's a very nice observation. I was really treading a line with this book because I know when I come home to visit my family or friends, I've been away for over 20 years. Ireland has changed tremendously in many ways for the better. In some ways, I would say less so. Um, But the the one thing you don't want to be is the bad emigrant. Um, I've missed quite a bit of social change in Ireland. Um, Two referendum, the, the pandemic, the economic collapse, the housing crisis. So in many ways, I'm not really entitled to comment on many things I see. And I'm very careful to point out in the book that perhaps leaving leaving 20 years ago and missing so much I've, I've missed out on an awful lot of detail but I would like to think I've gained a certain amount of perspective and Germany is a country that I think is sort of the gold standard in coming to terms with its past and watching them grapple with their past a very different past to Ireland which I never in any way compared to our past but seeing the structures they put in place the institutions they put in place I, I think every country has its own path and own model to adopt in coming to terms with its past but I don't really see what Ireland's model is in the book, I point out that if I brought my German friends to Ireland today, to Dublin today, I could bring them to, I think, three literature museums. I could bring them to several breweries, museums. I could bring them to a leprechaun museum. But the largest, most influential institution, an institution that made Ireland what it is today, I don't know where. What would I show them? The Book of Kells? Or would I show them the Murphy Report? Why isn't there a building where I can show them both? And uh, I think Ireland is moving on. There's plans now for the former laundry on Sean McDermott Street here in Dublin to be turned into a centre of remembrance where an archive would be. And that's a huge step forward. And I think it's a sign of maturity in Ireland that we are embracing or people who live in Ireland are accepting that this is all part, you know, the Book of Kells and the Murphy Report, um, the glory and the shame. And it's all part of us. It isn't, there's no shame in examining one's own shame. I think the shame is denying that it's ours. Derek Skelly, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Many thanks for having me. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you for listening. The Leap of Faith was presented by Siobhan Garrigan. Sound supervision was by Jamie Doyle and Sheila Nivuil. Broadcast coordinator was Jarlath Holland. The producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. And you can email the programme on faith at rte.ie.